0: Hello and welcome to the R.I. Science podcast. This month, we hear from lawyer turned poet and author Laura Mooker about love and relationships through love stories she has collected from around the world. Later, computer scientist and founder of the UK's first sex tech hackathon, Kate Devlin, will discuss what the future holds for sexual companion robots. This talk was recorded from our theatre here at the Royal Institution on Valentine's Day 2019 please be aware that this talk includes mention of sexual abuse. Remember, if you'd like to come along for a talk or watch a live stream from the comfort of your own home, head to rigb.org to book tickets to upcoming talks. Um,
1: So, my name is Laura Mooker, and uh, I wanted to start by doing three things in this talk. The first thing is to talk about why and how I started the project. The second is to explore some of the big questions uh, that may have occurred to you in your love lives, or maybe not. Um, and the third thing is to say a couple of things that if you zone out, find me really boring, I just want you to remember the last things, and then that, well, I will have succeeded this evening. Um, so, first of all, why and how? So when I was um, growing up, I grew up with uh, mum and two grandparents because I didn't know my dad. And my um, grandfather, who I called dad, died when I was 11. And I was left with two really excellent women, but no romantic relationship to observe. And so I didn't really understand them. And so without really even realising what I was doing, I would interrogate people I didn't know about their relationships. And it was really quite inappropriate and I didn't know I was doing it. And so people would be like... Here she goes again. Please don't do it to my aunt, Laura. I'd be like, I'm sorry. So tell me about why your relationship broke down. You know, really awkward. Anyway, um, <laughs> so then I was in Argentina uh, in the middle of nowhere speaking Spanish to a 95-year-old farmer uh, who'd been married for 75 years. And I suddenly thought, maybe... I should document this. And so I did. I started documenting it. So I accrued all these interviews and I had a job as a lawyer at the time. And then I got hit by a car when I was 29. And I had cardiac arrest and was um, essentially bedbound for a couple of years. And after my cardiac arrest, I got a little notebook and I said, what do I want to do before I die? And the first thing on my list was finish this book. So this is why I started the book. I just didn't understand it. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about how I went about doing it. So I approach strangers. So imagine we're like in an airport or a bus or hospital waiting room. Hi, I'm really sorry to bother you. Um, I've been writing this book for quite a while now where I've been interviewing strangers across the world and I would really love to interview you about your relationships. But if there's anything that you say that you want to retract, then that's fine and it's totally anonymous. Um, It will take as long as you want. And the reason I'm doing it is that I don't think we have honest enough conversations about love and I think people might be able to learn from you. And I got 66 straight yeses. And then I got a a really big no on 67. And I went outside and sat on the pavement and cried. But then I got over it and it was fine. Um, (laughs) uh, And I really didn't get many no's. Uh, I was reviewed in The Guardian recently and the guy was like, she doesn't tell us how many people rejected her. And I was like, I happily would have. It just was reading the flow. I did get a few, but most of all, it was yes, it was so nice. Anyway, I've got a little audio snippet. um, And I wanted to play you the audio snippet because it, it indicates... Some of the responses I had to the question of, how would you describe love? What I think it is, is um, a deep admiration for, for someone or something.
0: Something that everybody else has as a, as a straight tear goes down my it's cheek. Totally <laughs> something that brings you a lot of pleasure, but that really hurts, and as you can control it, it's uh,
2: very difficult.
1: It's pretty vast. Love is really vast.
0: Love is something everybody's looking for. It's hard to find. You should feel that you can develop into the person you need to be, but also that that person knows that you are who you are. Magical. Oh,
2: that's nice. <laughs> hard. <laughs> hard work.
0: <laughs> A combination of like uh, emotion and passion and like uh, care for another person. Acceptance, tolerance, respect.
2: That Sometimes I think it's accepting the good and the bad and uh, considering how much worse off it could be.
1: <laughs> so that was Noel, and he was an Irishman in his 80s, and I interviewed him walking along the seafront with his wife, who had severe dementia, and every four, three or four minutes, she would stop him and say, who's this lady? And every time he would go, this is the lady that's interviewing us for that book, do you remember? And this carried on and then we went into his home and we had a cup of tea and he said, you know, I've kind of lost her and I'm not getting her back, but after everything that she's done for me, I feel like this is the the least I can do for her. Um, Anyway, so uh, I did loads of interviews and Initially, it was going to be a book of interviews, but I realised that the interviews weren't enough to explore what love really is, and there were some questions that were coming up that I couldn't answer by listening to people because sometimes... We don't understand the patterns that we're living, but research can you know, measure our electrical conductance in our skin <laughs> or other random things to tell us a little bit about what's actually going on. Um, and I was left with questions that I didn't know the answer to, like, should you stay together for the children? Or what should you look for in a partner? Or why are some people very good at breaking up with people? <laughs> I wanted to explore some big questions. And the first one is, Does love at first sight exist? This was a really controversial question. um, And my answer is no. Uh, You might really disagree with me. Uh, And the reason I say no is because um, I... Interviewed some people who fell in love at first sight and got it totally right, like Ricardo. And he interviewed, um, he stopped someone at the window to try and get them to uh, vote for him in an upcoming election. Knew it was love at first sight, tried it on repeatedly, she rejected him. Twelve years later, they finally get together and he's like, love at first sight. And she's like, no, I thought you were an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but for every person like Ricardo who, who said it was love at first sight and got it right, there were people, multiple people who thought, who were convinced that it was love at first sight and got it wrong, like Danny in the south of France who said, I fell in love with someone who wasn't even the age he said he was, let alone the personality he portrayed himself as. And she said she was going to um, give away all her money to him she would have written a will to leave everything to him she was convinced that this was the person that she was going to spend the rest of her life with Um, and then a model who I sat next to on a plane fell for someone who was a stalker and installed spyware on her phone to monitor all her movements so I think the idea of love at first sight is dangerous and there's no way of assessing whether one person is right or or you know why does this person get it right and this person doesn't let me tell you And so I just wanted to explore some definitions, um, because I think this comes into it. Love is a really ambiguous word, uh, and it's unhelpful that we only have one word for what can be many things. In the context of romantic relationships, uh, I think we need to make some distinctions. There's lust, which has a high overlap with romantic love, and that means it's really hard to tell them apart, particularly because they are both very, very powerful. Probably because without them, we would die out as a species. Um, And uh, there's an argument that romantic love is there just to keep us around long enough to bring up the kids, although I don't personally buy that argument because the evidence suggests that maybe it fades at around one to two and a half years and children are still pretty useless at that age, in my experience. Um, and then the other type is companionate love, which is totally different in terms of its neurochemistry, but also the way it just feels. Uh, so it's much more chilled out, it's much calmer, and it's essentially more about friendship love with a deeper level of attraction. Um, So just to illuminate what's going on in lust and romantic love, Lust, they found, unhelpfully, some of the research on this has just asked people if they were in love without really specifying. And people, when they say in love, mean all sorts of different things. So my interpretation of in love is either in lust or early romantic love, right? So in either lust or early romantic love, what's happening is you're engaging your brain's reward system. And the brain's reward system is the same part of the brain that is um, activated when we take drugs. So this is why Claire in Frankfurt, who only dated married men in her 20s and 30s, said, "'Don't give me cocaine, don't give me heroin, give me a married man.'" She was right, (laughs) she was speaking the scientific truth. Anyway, so there was some research about rats, these poor rats. So these rats had these like weird little helmet things attached and their brains were stimulated in the brain's reward system and they were given a choice. You can press this lever and you can get food, or you can press this lever and get stimulated in the brain's reward system. And rats opted for starvation to get hit in the same part of the brain that we get hit in in early love, romantic love. With one rat pressing the lever 7,500 times in 12 hours, Um, repetitive strain injury surely. Um, And then the research into humans on this has been limited uh, because someone decided it was unethical. Really annoying. (laughs) I disagree. Um, And but before they decided that, we found out that um, people likened it to orgasm. And some people fell for the experimenters. So if there's someone that you really aren't getting to fall for you, you know what to do. Um, Okay, so that's all of that. Companionate love, on the other hand, is very different. And here are some of the words that I came up with, based really on what philosophers have to say about friendship, as I think that's the basis of it. Um, And I wanted to read you a little quote from Leo in Switzerland. Over time, it calms down. It's like if you have a sip of whiskey and warmth spreads all around in your belly. It is a warm feeling, a feeling of familiarity, feeling drawn to someone. Lust doesn't play a major part. I think it's a sense of connection, a sense of being together. I like to talk to her all the time. I want to talk to her, and that is a part of love for me too. I should also say that while I've been describing lust and early love being related to dopamine, which is essentially, I mean, I haven't said that, but it is. And that's what happens in the brain's reward system. What's happening is dopamine is saying, I don't care who it was, just get that high again. I don't care if you can have a relationship with them more. Whereas what's happening in companionate love is you've got things like vasopressin and oxytocin, which are basically way more chilled out. Like oxytocin's colloquial name is the cuddle hormone. You know, it's just less intense and less demanding. So, in answer to my question, does love at first sight exist? I interviewed a philosopher called Simon Blackburn. who's written an excellent book about lust. Um, I call him Professor Lust, but I don't know if he really likes that name. Uh, (laughs) And we were talking about the definitions of love. And if love requires time, then love at first sight can't exist by definition. And so he said something I like. He said... Love requires a certain timescale and a certain history. And if the whirlwind doesn't lead to that timescale and history, it wasn't love. It was a delusion or a fantasy of the moment. And you will only find that out with hindsight. And I think that that's true. And so that's why I'm really boring. And I advise people to wait for the drugs to wear off before making big commitments. I am really boring and unromantic. So um, the reason that I ask this um, is because I think um, it's quite a common myth But it relies on the idea that we're all very similar when it comes to relationships, and we're not. And there's a lot of science behind this. And now I'm going to go to one of my favourite subjects ever, which is attachment theory. So some of you may know about this, um, or may not, because it's actually not known enough. It's one of the most researched areas of psychology. uh, And the basic premise is we're not the same when it comes to relationships. So what happens is, uh, when you're growing up, let's say you were bringing me up thank you yep. Um, so let's say you're really loving and I ask for help and you're there and you're consistent then I internalise that and I come to believe that everyone will be consistent and loving right so that internal model is what dominates my understanding of relationships as I get older but it's not quite as straightforward as that because it can change with age so um, adult romantic relationships can change our experience as can bereavement and trauma and abuse which is really common by the way I really didn't enjoy researching that um, and so there are things that can change it. But on the whole, it kind of comes through your upbringing. So there are three attachment styles. There's actually four, but I'm not going to go into the fourth because we don't have enough time. So secure is true of about 58% of the population. And secure attachment, in summary, is relationships come really easily to you. They're no big deal. It's really easy. You're realistic. You're really good at commitment and intimacy. And you're really good at communicating. And you make me sick. Uh, OK. Uh, you're also, sorry, I just forgot to add some of the benefits. You're less likely to develop mental health problems. You know, you really just do have it going good for you. So uh, avoidant attachment, which is what I used to have before this project, uh, It's true of 23% of the population. And the way that avoidance works is that you idealise independence and you feel suffocated in relationships and you tend to puff yourself up and project what you don't want to see in yourself on your partners. And this is great because it really helps you break up with them, um, uh, which is what avoidant people do and which is what I did, including with my husband, who I'm now married to, obviously. I broke up with him and that was awkward. Anyway, um, so... Uh, the other thing that's important to say about avoided people is that they don't connect with their emotions. Because if you're the only person you are prepared to rely on, you need to see yourself as totally invulnerable. So not connecting to sadness or fear or any kind of weakness is a really useful strategy for that. Anxious, on the other hand, uh, and people with an anxious attachment style, not anxious in the traditional sense of the word, uh, are in many ways the absolute opposite. And so instead of wanting space... They want to be close. And when they don't get close, they exhibit what psychologists call protest behaviour, which basically is angry, frustrated expressions of not being close. So it might sound a bit like, I didn't want you to call me anyway. Or, oh, fine, you're now available? Well, I'm busy. Um, And people with an anxious attachment style, instead of not connecting to their emotions, are, are... a little bit too good at connecting to them. So they're very, very sensitive to threats and they're not very good at calming those threats down. And there's neuroscience to back that up. Um, What is inconvenient about this is that avoidant people... I should add, sorry, you're somewhere on a scale, so you're not either avoidant or not. You're highly avoidant or highly anxious. So people who are highly avoidant often end up in relationships with people who are highly anxious. And what that results in is, let's say you and I are in a relationship. How many people am I gonna be in a relationship with by the end of tonight? Anyway. Let's say you're avoidant and I'm anxious. I want to be close, but that makes you want to get space because you don't want, you find it suffocating. So then I'm like, oh no, she's withdrawing. I want to get closer, which makes you withdraw. So you have this chase, withdraw, chase, withdraw pattern, which isn't very enjoyable for anyone. Um, Whereas if you had, say, someone who was avoidant or someone who was anxious with someone who's secure, then the secure person, let's say, in this example, I'm I, I'm anxious and you're secure. And I'm like, I want to be close. And you'd be like, okay, then. <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, I feel fine. <laughs> Great. And then over time, according to psychologists and research, my anxious attachment style chills out, basically, and I become more secure. So... 42% of people are insecure, and by that I mean avoidant or anxious, or the one I haven't told you about, which is unresolved. And this is independent of gender, intelligence, or memory. This is my favourite point because I think there's a bit of a myth where that people are like, no, but you know, men like they really want space, or women could be a bit needy. It's not true. Um, and also, what I think is relevant. So there's no way of being too clever to have an insecure attachment style. But also, even if you yourself are secure. You will probably at some point date someone who's insecure or you'll have a family member or a friend or someone who is insecure who you will watch live out the same patterns because they don't necessarily know or they do know and they don't want to change it um so going back to my question should you just know if it's right if you have doubts about a relationship it might say more about you than your relationship if you're avoidant, for example You'll have doubts about everyone. It's your way of being in the world. You'll be like, "Mm, no, I don't like that black jacket. We've got to break up. Because you find relationships suffocating and your preferred state of being is independence. So should you just know if it's right is a nonsense question. Is there such a thing as the one? You might think this is a silly question, but in US research, 31% of men and 26% of women of all ages and backgrounds, married or unmarried, thought there was only one true love. And then 88% of 20 to 29-year-old single people thought everyone had a soulmate just waiting for them. (laughs) Can you imagine? Oh, there you are, just waiting. Hi, nice to meet you. At last. You're in Botswana. It's inconvenient, but I found you. Anyway, so... um, I don't think this is right. It really annoys me. (laughs) The reason I don't think this is right is because it puts all the focus on the object. All I need to do is find the right person. You, right person. Done. Happy forever. And I don't think it works like that because actually, the evidence suggests, and all of the people that I interviewed that had relationships lasting decades said it's hard work. Relationships and love are built, they're not just found. Anyway, there's also some other dangerous ideas in that, like the idea that you should have no doubts, you know, that you, that humans, that if you have problems or doubts, that it's, it means you shouldn't be together rather than all humans are fallible and all relationships are complicated. There's just so many aspects to this that bother me and it's unfortunate because loads of people think it. So my answer to that is no. What should you look for in a partner? I love this one. So I could tell you about what people around the world look for in a partner, and I will. But that's not necessarily helpful in because you know we know more than they do in this room of cleverness. Um, just to give you a bit of an idea, virginity is uh, what some countries think is important. Not in England. We don't care here. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky for some of us. <laughs> not me. Uh, kindness. So in a study which I find really romantically called the International Mate Selection Project. (laughs) Just selecting a mate. Uh, Kindness and understanding was ranked as the most important thing in a partner. And it was ranked as the most important thing by 10,047 people across 37 countries on six continents. All ages, backgrounds and cultures. Isn't that amazing? Yes humanity is good. Oh, and there's some really depressing research about how men always, always, always go for women who are much younger, but we will not good to that. No, no, no. Skipping on, skipping on. So here are my top tips. <laughs> um, so I think, as I've said, love is a skill. And so if you or someone you know is looking for a partner, instead of considering, say, height, why not consider whether they're prepared to put in the hard work? Hmm. Um, I think commitment's more important than connection. Let's explore connection. When you meet someone, you sniff out their pheromones to see if they have an immune system that is different to yours, the theory being that if you reproduce that person, you have a child with the best immune immune system possible. Um, And also women like completely different things according to where they are in their menstrual cycle, and men respond in totally different ways without even realising. So they have higher levels of testosterone if uh, a woman is ovulating, and they don't know that. Anyway, connection, back commitment. Um, Don't be overly picky. The research suggests we have no idea what we want. And we say we want one thing and then we go for something else. And this is verified across speed dating research, online research, thousands and thousands of people. We have no idea what we want. Don't be picky. You get it wrong anyway. Go for someone secure if you have an insecure attachment style. and also, yeah, wait till the drugs were off, because we've already discussed it. it. doesn't make for clear thinking. And some interesting research in the form of the Seattle Longitudinal Study found that who you end up with changes who you are over time. So they followed thousands and thousands of people, 178 of which stayed together over 35 years. And over that 35-year period, uh, they became more similar in their happiness levels. And over, I think, a 14-year period, they became more similar in their intellectual ability and their vocabulary. So... It is important, I think, to choose, although I I go on and on about love being skill, you also do want to choose as wisely as you can, but it's not about finding the one because we've already discussed that. (laughs) Do you even want a partner? No, maybe not. So in research around the world, loads of people don't. In the UK, 49% didn't. Admittedly a small study, but similar findings around the world. Here are some reasons they didn't. They don't like being nagged. They like spending their cash as they like, and they feel a sense of achievement about coping on their own. Of those over 65, none wanted a partner. Now, this is a small study, but, you know, in the US, for example, 55% didn't want a partner. And in Japan, it's such a problem that it's called celibacy syndrome, and the government's throwing money at people to try and get them to reproduce. So there are obviously, uh, you know, there's an assumption, I think, and everyone that I interviewed that was single felt this kind of assumption slash stigma that, well, of course you'd want to be in a a relationship, because I am, and I want to think that I'm right, so (laughs) you should definitely want to be in a relationship, but people don't. The only thing I would say is... Now that we all know and we're on the same page about attachment theory, there are some people who are single not because really that's what they choose but because they are fearful of loss. And so I just I think the main thing is to kind of be conscious of whether, what kind of choice you're making. This is from the British Household Survey, which followed people over time. Stevie Yap, who was behind it, said, look, marriage does make people happier, really briefly. And then... <laughs> Whoa, got a nice dress! But it just kind of flattens out. But on the plus side, It stops the steady decline of happiness seen in people who don't marry. But I, again, have a problem with a lot of this research because basically it's really easy to compare people who are married to people who aren't married because when you get married, you have to register it and that's really nice and easy for them. Whereas you don't have to register when you start dating Roger and then you ditch him two months later. Do you know what I mean? So it's very oversimplistic. But on the whole, is monogamy natural? In humans, no. (laughs) No. In animals? No! Next! Okay, I'll give you you some stats really quick. So the OECD looked at uh, countries around the world, almost all of them, not quite. 46% accepted marriage to more than one person. Uh, Infidelity rates, very high in some studies, up to 70% in women and 72% in men. Monogamy not working so well there. And then 21% of people in a large US study were trying non-monogamy. So I don't think monogamy is the norm in humans, uh, sexual monogamy. I think we're just expected to be it. Uh, in animals, or at least in heterosexual relationships, in animals, basically no animals are monogamous. And those that we thought were like swans, DNA testing shows that they are sleeping with other people. So in 40%, <laughs> swans, you know, they do the heart thing. Um, LAUGHTER it's okay, I'm sorry to ruin the romance of Valentine's Day. Um, so 40% of clutches of eggs have at least one egg fathered by a different male. And bonobos, who many think are our closest living relative, have sex for every possible occasion. Like, oh, I like your shirt, let's have sex. Oh, nice to meet you, let's have sex. Can I have a bit of your snack bar, let's have sex. I mean, anyway, so I'm not entirely convinced that Montgomery is natural. And then I've got this, but I don't think I've got time. Why do people cheat? Briefly, it does happen in happy relationships. When asked, people said, career advancement, fun, (laughs) (laughs) escapism, exploring sexual identity, to combat feeling inadequate. But people don't always know why they're cheating. That's assuming that people know, as we discussed attachment theory, if you have an avoidant attachment style, you might be wanting to introduce insecurity into the relationship, and if you have an anxious attachment style, you might be wanting to get that proximity that you're not getting with your partner, or you might be in protest behaviour. So I have more questions that I haven't looked at because maybe they're a bit too depressing, she says, having talked about infidelity, um, Like, how do you know when it's time to walk away? Should you stay together for the children? Is there a better time to remarry after loss? Um, and I explored them in my book, which is there, I finished it. Um, so remember this, the way you think, feel, and behave might say more about you than your partner. Love is built, not found. A lot of what we think about love is wrong.
2: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, next up, we have Kate. So, Kate, over to you. Okay, so I um, started about four years ago researching sex robots, because obviously that's what you do. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm totally lowering the tone now. <laughs> um, and, you know, I looked at all the ins and outs of uh, sex technology, as it were. And it, it's been really fun. And I get. I get interviewed a lot about it because there aren't that many people willing to talk about this. And journalists say, so Kate, what got you interested in researching sex? And <laughs> I have to go, is that a trick question? <laughs> it's fascinating, it's so fascinating. Um, but the reason I got into sex robots in particular was because um, I was in the pub after a conference. Um, I was at a cognitive systems conference. So I, for years I've been working on on artificial intelligence and human-computer interaction. And we were saying, you know, what happens if you give a robot, a machine, an AI, the ability to think like a human? And in some ways it's really useful because if you could get a robot that could feel pain, for example, it would stop itself from being damaged because it would have a reaction and it would feel, oh, I can't do that. It's gonna damage me in some way and it would stop. And what if we could make robots that cared For someone, if we give it empathy, it could look after us uh, and care for us. And you know, what would happen if we built a system that could feel desire? And as Laura was saying, we've got so much going on in our brains when we're aroused. I mean, massive amounts of weird neurotransmitter stuff going on that just completely changes how we think. So I was very interested in the cognitive side of that, and then also just looking at what is already out there. And it was fascinating. It was absolutely fascinating. And many years ago, I I actually started my career as an archaeologist. So I was very interested in how this had changed over time. And when I looked into it, it so happens that there are stories about sex robots going back, well, to Pygmalion, which is the one people know most about. So Pygmalion was a sculptor. And he didn't like the women that hung around his home. They were all, you know, considered them to be a bit... Loose women and inferior. And so he decided he would build his own magic perfect woman. Because we all like to try and build a magic perfect person in our heads. He built one. uh, And he prayed to the gods to make her real. And he kissed her as she came to life. And he married her and they had children. I don't know how it worked, but it did. Um, Anyway... Little statue children. And um, (laughs) but there's earlier stories. There are earlier stories that go right back to um, the very well, we can think of um Pandora, the very first human created by the gods as being an artificial intelligence who was programmed by a team of of coders, godly coders. Um, It's really interesting, and a, a friend of mine, um Dr. Genevieve Lively at Bristol, has been researching this, and it's really, really interesting. And um, if we look back, so there's two sort of strands to my research. I was very interested in what's happening with sex robots. I was also very interested in where it came from. And because sex toys have been around for a long time. And in fact, we have phallic representations that go back about 28,000 years. Now, that's not saying they were sex toys. Archaeologists, when you say, what was this used for? They go, um, ritual. Uh <laughs> <laughs> <it's> definitely ceremonial. <laughs> So we don't know. We don't know. But they were shaped like a penis, mostly. Um, very few vulval representations, mostly, mostly penises. Um, which, you know, we still like to draw on things today. Uh, so nothing really changes. So, you know, I was interested in tracking... So my, the first part of my book tracks the progress. You know, what happened throughout time with sex toys and what happened, where did these sex robots come from? And sex robots come from the lineage of the sex doll, which is much later... You know, we have the myths about it, we have the stories, but the actual evidence for sex dolls is it starts around sort of 17th, 18th century, with the sort of apocryphal tales of sailors making women shapes out of bundles of clothes on long voyages and things like that. So but anyway, um so there is a sort of thriving sex doll community in the world today. Um people from many walks of different walks of life. We'll talk a bit about, about that in a second, but um, Mostly the, the idea of having a sex robot, when it hasn't come from sci fi, it's come from people who own high end, expensive sex dolls who want a bit of interactivity. And I was fascinated by that, so I went off to look about it. And so I thought I'd flag up some of the questions that come up as well, more big questions, um, supported by. Interesting tabloid headlines that get written about this. And I would like to say that The Express are the most egregious offenders of all. Um, so you know, I thought it might be the male, but it was, it was The Express. They were really fond of a, a sex robot shocker. So um, in this one, you know, sex robot shocker, almost half of all men will use erotic robot playthings, says survey. All right, if you dig behind the headlines here, and I, was at the com- I ran the conference where this, this research came out, um, the survey's really only about 230 men. Um, so it's not, it's not a hugely expansive survey. It was interesting. Um, I love this, real relationships with dolls in pipelines for Lads. And so I keep getting asked, you know, is this gonna be the end of human-human relationships? Um, and no, it's not. Uh, first of all because we're really really good at being human and sex is a motivating factor it's the reason whether or not you like it that we are all here Um, and not everyone wants to have sex um, but many people do and you know our parents did I'm sorry to break that to you but (laughs) our parents definitely did so I want to show you why when it says that you know there will be these real relationships and these men will use erotic playthings and they'll not be able to tell the difference between a woman and a sex robot. I would just like to show you what the current level of technology is. <laughs> and it's this. Okay, so on the left, in the, uh, the, the, the lady in the black lingerie, um, that's Roxy with three X's in the middle, triple X Roxy. <laughs> um, Roxy was wheeled out, literally, um, an exhibition years ago, and hasn't really got past the prototype stage. So she's never been seen again. And I I do gender them. I start talking about them as she. And they're nearly always she. Um, So Roxy's been around for a while. Roxy had different modes. She had, you know, wild mode, and and wicked mode, and mature mode, and frigid mode, and all these sort of really kind of worrying things. Um, The guy who who um makes Roxy is a little bit litigious so i'm not going to say that she doesn't exist i'm just going to say that no one's ever seen one in real life <laughs> and even at that um so apparently he does take orders for them but we don't know if those orders have been filled in the middle is Harmony. Harmony is probably the closest thing we have to a commercially available sex robot, and even that hasn't shipped to customers yet. She's developed by a company called Abyss Creations, who make Real Doll. And if you've ever seen the film Lars and the Real Girl, it's a Real Doll in that. Real Dolls are quite expensive, high-end sex dolls. They cost upwards of about five thousand dollars. And Roxy, oh, sorry, Harmony, forgive me, Harmony. Uh, Harmony will cost uh, upwards of ten thousand dollars when she's widely available. She's stationary from the neck down. So take away anything you think about robots. She doesn't move from here. She has a, a really, actually quite good animatronics in her face. So she can turn and she can smile. and she can. She's a lovely little smile, actually. And she can blink and she can move. Um, but she does not move her body. And she can't stand up on her own. So, you know, when we say robots, we mean she can do a bit of that. And that's about it. Um, and then on the right, that's Samantha in the pink. Um, Samantha is created by, that's her, her owner or her creator, um, Sergio Santos there, and he has built um, around 25 of these to date. He's sort of a garage builder. He and his wife make them in their home. Um, he, no longer, he no longer sells them and no longer works in the development, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Um, but Samantha was very interesting because he wasn't interested in the form of the robot. He was interested in the AI, and he wanted to make a robot that would respond. That you could have a, a reciprocal relationship with, and so he put a lot of effort into engineering this, so that there was, um, you know, she would ramp it up. If you were if you were nice to her, she'd be nice back. If you flirted in a progressive manner, where first you you know, stroked her arm, and then you might move to her breast, and she might respond a bit better, and things like that. So he was trying to get this idea of, sort of consent and reciprocation in. Anyway, that's basically it. There's a few. There's literally a handful of workshops worldwide that are prototyping sex robots. There's no corporate backing. There's no sex robot army coming to take over and steal our men or women or whoever. It's not happening. This is, this is the extent of it. So it's very, very, very low-key. And I think it's going to stay very, very niche. But that doesn't mean it's not interesting. It's definitely interesting. So, I'm going to show you. I went out to visit Harmony, uh, what I did for my summer holidays. <laughs> I went to visit a sex robot workshop. Um, it's very interesting. So, this, I went to see Harmony, to see her beam, to see the factory. And I went there thinking, this is going to be really grim. Because I have a bit of a problem with the, the kind of reductive stereotyping, Barbie pornified images of women. I don't think that's useful at all. So, I thought, I'll go and see this. And I went to the, the workshop thinking, I'm not going to like this. And instead, I was this really weird dissonance where I was looking at it going, these are beautifully made, they are like works of art they are so carefully crafted and they are detailed and they are lovely Um, even when you have like sort of fake vulvas sitting two feet away from you on a table waiting to be inserted Um, but even the fake vulvas are beautifully detailed Um, But it's just they are incredible works of art but they're also worrying um, in terms of objectification so I was a bit kind of confused about that Oh, I should say, she, um, when they developed her, um, they had to try out, so she's got, she's got this animatronic body with the, the face that moves, not the head. Uh, sorry, face that moves, not the body. She has an AI personality, and um, they've still got a lot of really good people working on it. And the AI personality can be used as a standalone app, so you can carry your girlfriend around in your smartphone or your tablets, and just have, it's like, $20, you can buy it like now. Um, and you can have an AI girlfriend. They're working on a male version, but they have to change the AI, because apparently they don't want them to say things like, I'll put on a sexy dress for you. Uh, which I think is unfair, because there's scope for that. But there you go. Each to their own, no kink shaming. Anyway, um, so this is Harmony. And when they went through the voices, um, Matt McMullen, who's the sculptor, he's in the, p- the video here, uh, he picked a Scottish accent. <laughs> it's just it's so incongruous when you're looking at this doll. So <laughs> but this is a little video of it.
0: How are you today? Very well. I can't wait until we're alone. I've got a special surprise for you. Oh, yeah? I will not tell you yet. I will wait for the right moment.
2: So, <laughs> so the animatronics are actually quite good. The AI is actually quite good. It's, it's, you know, there's a decent enough chatbot there. But there's something a bit, oh, and a lot of that sounds to the uncanny valley effect, which says that when we some- see something that looks human like but isn't human, we kind of go, oh, that's freaky. There's lots of reasons why this might be. Um, one of the theories is that it reminds us of death. Um, so it's you know, kind of like, oh, there's a <laughs> an animated corpse. Oh. Um, so you know, it's, it's, it's kind of freaky. Now, Matt, Matt's customers are people who are um, real doll owners. And they said they wanted interactivity in their robots. And his customers are really, really varied. So I talked to a few of them. And one of the people that I talked to who was just wonderful is a guy called Dave Cat. And he comes up in all these documentaries a lot of the time. He's very open about his relationship with his dolls. And he has three. I think he might even have four now. And he gives some personalities and backstories and names. Um, he's got his... Doll, who is his girlfriend, and then the girlfriend's mistress. And then, you know, so they all have different roles in the life. He dresses them up. And he's incredibly outgoing and lovely and talkative. And um, not the sort of person that the media would have us believe is a sex doll owner, right? So we all think, oh, it's someone in a basement somewhere. And I find it's totally not. It's a really wide collection of people. Some people are married and in relationships and they bring this into their relationship. Other people are lonely and they want company. Others just have a fetish for the dolls, and others don't even interact with them. They just pose them and take pictures of them. So it's a really, really wide-ranging thing. And rather than being isolated, what I find was fascinating is that they form communities, especially online, and become friends in real life, and they go on holiday together because they're being, people are being accepting of it, and they find a community and a niche. And I actually find that really heartwarming. <laughs> Right, but anyway, are they going to ruin human-human relationships? No, I don't think they are. Um, In fact, (laughs) they're they're approving them. Right. So the next question. Will sex robots destroy society? The newspapers are very vocal about this. (laughs) Um, The one on the top right from Newsweek... That came out this week. Uh, I keep getting flagged up on on, on people on Facebook sending me more headlines going, did you talk to these people? It's like, this one wasn't me. (laughs) Uh, Hacked sex robots could murder people, security expert warns. And I would like to know, has that security expert ever met a sex robot? Because they can't move. And the only way they're going to murder you is if you've left them plugged into the mains to charge and you've put them in the bath (laughs) or something like that. Which I should add, if you you can't, they, they're the ones that are made of um, silicon. If you um, want to get them to body temperature, you can put them in, ele- in the bath, not electrics. Uh, or under an electric blanket to warm them up. And they take on the temperature of the room. So you can't actually warm them. Anyway, that's a little bit of uh, sex robot trivia for you. Um, <laughs> the... Um, the one from the mirror that says sex robots could reveal your deepest perversions to complete strangers was I, I gave a talk looking at sex toys uh, that are being hacked. Um, there's quite a few of these. there have been about three major hacks of sex toys in the past year. You might think, why the heck has anyone connected their sex toy to the internet? You might think that. Most of you are probably thinking, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great idea. Um, so you get smart sex toys, and you get smart everything these days. Anything you can connect to the internet can be hacked. And a few years ago, there was one a, a vibrator called the WeVibe um, by a company called Standard Innovation, and they. People in long-distance relationships might use these. They're also used by um, webcam models who will um, put on performances online, sexual performances online, and will use these paired with another device that the the viewer can use that corresponds. So it's almost like you're having sex, but remotely. Anyway, the standard innovation, um, we're collecting data from their vibrators. And, you know, they were collecting data that is really useful to manufacturers like frequency of use, patterns of vibration, all that kind of stuff. They were also collecting vaginal temperature, which is a bit kind of ooh. Um, they didn't, they want, wanted to check, you know, was it overheating or anything like that. Kind of, uh. um, all of this is kind of understandable in that we need to know if things are working. They didn't, they didn't anonymize it. They hadn't decoupled the data from the email addresses that people had signed up with. So they had a huge data set of exactly what people were doing with the vibrators. Um, And they had to pay many millions of dollars (laughs) (laughs) as a settlement for that one. So there have been a few of these. Now, um, the ZNet story, or uh, ZDNet, uh, ZDNet, sorry, sex robot molested, destroyed at electronic show. Now, I mentioned Sergio Santos making the Samantha robot. This is the reason he stopped making it. He took the Samantha robot to a, a trade show, an electronics show, and he put this version of it on, on the stage, and He said, oh, on the platform, and said, "Right, yeah, you can go and, go and touch, see what she's like, go and touch and stroke and poke and prod and see what this doll is like. And people did. And you know, if you put anything on display and you say to people, go and touch it, when it's a delicate object, it will break. It will definitely break. Um, and so they went up and poked and prod and, and, of course, there was some damage. Not very much damage, but some damage unfortunately some of the papers got hold of it and between a language difference between the both both him and the interviewer and a number of other things these headlines were emerging about this doll being sexually assaulted this sex robot being sexually assaulted and molested you can't trust men you can't even give them a a doll at a trade show that's not what happened and I, I looked into it very carefully it's not what happened so if you see these things going well sex robots have been attacked. They haven't. They really haven't. And when I talked to um, Abyss Creations, they said it's incredibly rare, vanishingly rare, that they get a doll back that's been damaged in some way deliberately. It tends to be... They do get dolls back for repairs because they're fragile enough things, but they don't really tend to get them back because they've been destroyed. Not least because they cost upwards of $5,000. There's an incentive to keep them good. So, um, will they destroy society? Well, there has also been... Um, worries that use of sex robots could lead to increased sexual violence. And I took this really seriously and did a big dive into all of the available meta-analyses of all this kind of stuff. And there's just no evidence for it. It can't be substantiated. And I think the closest parallel is things like computer games causing real-world violence, which, despite there being... Many, many studies, there's no conclusive proof. And if anything, it looks like it's, it's not a factor given the sheer scale of people playing and the not corresponding scale, no corresponding increase. So no, I don't think we can say that. I think we can certainly say that the current forms of sex robots are stereotypically reductive and not particularly good and lead to more negative body image. We can definitely see that that could be a thing. But in terms of actual sexual violence, it, I just don't see that. And in fact, the people that I talk to who own the dolls and who want the sex robots are incredibly respectful of those dolls and sex robots. They treat them really, really well. So I haven't seen any indication. There may be outliers, but there are always outliers. Okay, go, go, go. It's my daughter sneaking out, which is good, because then I can do this part while she's not in the room. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so one of the other things that comes up is, you know, what about if someone makes a, a childlike sex robot? And this is... This is the of the things I had to look at, this was really disturbing. This and the incels and, and, and such. Um, in the past few years, there's been a crackdown on people importing childlike sex dolls in this country. There were something like 128... Seized um, at customs. There's no UK law prohibiting owning them, but there is an archaic law about import- importing obscene items that people were able to be charged under. And they successfully prosecuted seven people, and six of those people had images of child abuse already on their machines. So we know that they were, you know, they were definitely um, paedophilic tendencies. Um, some companies manufacture sex dolls that are the size, well, that are smaller, that could be like childlike size, but they've not, it's, they call them, you know, they say it's for portable reasons. Um, but they, you know, it's, it's, it's really dodgy, but they're actually miniature versions of adult women in that they have breasts. You know, they're very clearly formed in, in a matured, um, post pubescent way, adult body. But there's no doubt that there will be people out there who are, using this in a kind of disturbing ways. And, you know, it's like, first of all, it's very hard to tell. How can you tell if a doll is being used for sexual purposes? You know, you have to, they had to get people in to sort of examine the dolls and say, well, this looks like it is definitely childlike and this looks like it could be used for sex. Um... Now the counter argument is people said, well perhaps it's an okay thing. Perhaps if there's a proxy, perhaps if there's some kind of way of using this to counter abuse, then that might be a good thing. I talked to quite a few people um, because we you know, again we don't have evidence, and you can't run a study really very well on that because it's just ethical nightmare. Um, but there have been there's a team of researchers at the University of Montreal, and they looked at using virtual reality to see if sex offenders were rehabilitated and they find that they could put people in virtual situations show them sexually um, arising images of whether it was of of children or of other any kinds of of criminal deviancy and see whether or not they've been treated so there could be a rule in it for that but it's something that's so very difficult and you know when people say oh well if you know why can't they do Why Why are you allowed adult sex robots and not children, not child ones? They're both just robots. And I think for me, I, I had to think long and hard about this. And for me, it's the fact that it mirrors a very vulnerable and dangerous thing in real life and with people who are at risk. And so we should be really cautious. It's like the one area where I advocate a lot of caution and probably regulation. It's not all bad. <laughs> it's not all bad at all. Um, this, <laughs> they express. Um, got a bit worked up about this. So they said, oh, is sexual, sexual healing. Sex robots should be penal. People's homes says expert. Um, they called me an expert, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, and I didn't quite say it like that. What I did say was that sex technology, and not sex robots, sex technology is becoming better and better at delivering pleasure and a good sex life to people who may not have been able to have that in the past. There are sex toys being made for people who have been through sexual abuse and are helping them reconnect with their bodies. There is a UK company called Hot Octopus who make a vibrator which is um, a vibrator for men for men with spinal cord injuries and for erectile dysfunction so they're able to orgasm. There are lots of things like that and when it comes to old people's homes. We put our old people into care homes and we forget that they had us and that they, you know, then there's, t- there's a survey called ELSA, English Longitudinal Study of Ageing, and it's found that people are having sex in their 80s and 90s, but when you put them in a care home, they don't have privacy. There's windows in the doors. The doors don't lock. They've got single beds. They've lost a partner. They're repartnering with someone, but their kids don't like it. The carers think it's all taboo. Yeah. So, you know, possibly there's a space for sex technology in that kind of aspect as well. And then I watched Grace and Frankie, and they had a vibrator company, and I was like, yeah, I totally justified. This is like <laughs> Someone's actually writing dramas about this on Netflix. This is cool. All people's vibrators. Uh, so, uh, what does the future of sex look like? Um, i tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like the stock images of sex robots and sexy robots. Um, so when you look up robots, so the future of, of sexy women and sexy robots, um, yeah, they, the, the future is white and shiny and chrome and got a bit of a blue cast to it. Um, I think we can do better, I think we can do better than sex robots in their current form. And I think we can learn a lot from sex technology. And I've tracked sex tech, uh, my book charts sex tech from its very early days from from sex toys. And we've seen a massive design shift. Roundabout the start of the electromechanical vibrator in Victorian times was not to cure women of hysteria, by the way. That's a complete myth that everyone seems to have sort of run with. But Halle Lieberman's book has shown that's not that's not true. Um, it's just a very popular um, story about it. So the the electromechanical vibrator was repurposed quite quickly for sex, but it wasn't the reason for it. Um, but it wasn't until the sort of turn of The century, um, the end of the 90s, when Sex and the City had an episode with a rabbit vibrator, I'm wearing my earrings in tribute, I've got rabbit vibrator earrings on tonight. Um, (laughs) That people started talking a bit more about sex. Now, even that episode of Sex and the City was really moralistic and judgy because, you know, Charlotte could only have a vibrator. She didn't have a real man. She had to be rescued from the vibrator. You know, still this judgment going on. But people began to talk more and more and sales of vibrators just rocketed. Uh, And um, we saw a change in form. We saw a move away from genital replicas to really interesting things, to different shapes, different textures, different types of toys. I think we can do the same with sex robots. So I ran a sex tech hackathon where I thought, I'll get a few people in a room and we'll sort up some sex toys and we'll glue them back together in interesting ways. What actually happened was my students took over, ran an amazing event where we had sort of 80 people in a room um, making incredibly interesting prototypes of new sex technology. And so we ran it again. And the second year we ran it, we said, what if we can look at non-human forms of interesting sex tech that is immersive or wearable, that is VR, all sorts of things. So for anyone who doesn't know what a hackathon is, it's essentially you get a bunch of people, you keep them in a room for 24 hours and you tell them to make things in teams. They they weren't stuck in the room, they could leave, they were free to go and sleep and things like that. But um, we we didn't just bring in techies, We, we got together artists, psychologists, industry specialists, material scientists, techies, students, but people of all ages as well. And it was really, really wonderful. And I mean, the stuff that came out the first year, we had someone, a team that made a sexual cryptocurrency where you had to stroke a leather wallet until it generated a crypto, <laughs> a Bitcoin type thing. Um, and the idea was that you could either devote your love and attention to money or you could spend that time stroking someone else. Um, and you know, this is, uh, there was another one where someone had 3D printed a, a vibrating fist. And then they used the vibration patterns were used from stock market data so you could uh, ride the market fuck the system. <laughs> it It's absolutely brilliant. One of my favorites um, one of my favorites was uh, uh, it's called peacock, And they said, you know, if, if someone has a penis, you can tell if they're aroused. If someone has a vagina, you can't really tell. So what they did was they got a vaginal egg, and they put moisture sensors on it. And when the moisture sensors were triggered, it opened up a huge fan, a paper fan, like a peacock's tail. <laughs> it was just incredible. And I thought, that's amazing as an art project. But imagine that in terms of prosthetics. You could do things like that with prosthetics as well. So there's so much scope. And then the one that won last year was this... um, I called it a sensory shawl. They call it a sex blanket. Um, But essentially, it's it's a a shawl with a piece of fabric with sensors in it. When you wear it on your body... And if you imagine yourself going into some kind of either virtual reality or augmented reality space... And perhaps you see rose petals falling from the roof and they touch your skin. And then you feel them because the sensors trigger on the blanket. So you've got this emotional, immersive, sensuous experience. So my big drive is to move away from this idea of the sex robot, which is really limited. It's not diverse. It's, It's made by straight men for straight men. Why can't we do something more interesting? Why can't we have wearable tech that takes our bio-information and feeds it back to us in some way that is sensuous, that is about intimacy, not about necessarily about having sex, but about being intimate and about connecting with someone, whether they're in the same room or far away, or if you don't have someone, about having that experience on your own. So I think we can do so, so much better. And we're starting to see a shift. We're starting to see a lot more women in this sphere as well. There's a lot of new sex toy startup companies run by women. And then we're still seeing kind of, you know, a lot of objections, like venture capitalists won't fund them quite often because of morality clauses. Um, CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, awarded a prize to a a kind of next generation vibrator and then took it off them again because of the moral panic. At the same time, they had VR porn on display on their trade show floors. So there's a real double standard going on. But I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic that we can, go move the same way that sex toys have moved from being kind of replica genitals to something abstract and beautiful, I think we can do the same with sex robots. Because if you think of all the robots that are around you today, really none of them look human. I mean, your robot vacuum cleaner, or your bomb disposal robot, or your drones, or your Amazon delivery robot, we can do better. We're terrible at making human robots, so let's make robots that deliver something that is sensuous, that is intimate. And, you know, if we need that human characteristic, and I, I, I have not even gone into what makes us connect with technology, there's a whole chapter on that in my book, but we can do that. We, we bond with technology, even when it's not human-like. We, we have the ability to do that. So, yeah, I think, so my, my vision for the future, this is one of the illustrations from my book by the incredibly talented Stuart Taylor. Um, the vision for the future is this kind of wonderful, amazing space where we all find someone, something or some people or some group or just on our own, we have a great time um, and the technology helps us have pleasure. Thank you.
0: That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. To learn more about this topic, you can read Laura Mooker's book, Love Factually, a collection of interviews about love combined with academic research on love and relationships. You can also find Kate Devlin's book, Turned On, Science, Sex and Robots. If you liked this episode, please let us know by leaving a review and a rating. And if you really liked it, you can come support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. And remember to head to rigb.org to book tickets for our upcoming talks.